Halloween Special, episode 221. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your ghost, Norm Sherman. Ah, Halloween, my favorite time of the year. The leaves turn dark and the evening comes early as the sleepy chill of frozen death prepares to make its cold, billowing, wintry descent upon all the warm and thriving. It's just beautiful, really. But at the same time, imagine what skanks would wear if Halloween were in July. Or should I say, Bulai. I should, I suppose. This is a Drabblecast Halloween special after all, and I feel like I'm kinda anchored to this whole bad holiday pun thing at this point. No, no, you know what? that. This is the fourth annual Drabblecast Halloween special. This year, folks, no corny, predictable Halloween jokes. None, okay? I mean, what gets into people this time of the year? Seriously, it's like some arcane and malevolent, jackal-faced, lame joke spirit rises from the hot subterranean vents of Tartarus every All Hallows Eve, possesses mankind, and compels him to spread abominably lame, rehashed punchlines as often as possible. What happened to the guy who couldn't keep up payments to his exorcist? He was repossessed. Mortuum flagellus equis spooktacularis. Oh no, it's trying to take hold. What do ghosts serve for dessert? Ice cream. Oh. Must fight it. What do ghosts throw that always come back? Uh, boomerangs. <laughs> no, no. Uh, what do ghosts catch that always come back? Boo herpes. It burns! Oh, it burns! And um, why do witches have warts? You ought to ask a ghost. Boo herpes again. It's very prevalent. It's like one out of three witches. Why'd the skeleton cross the road? It was turning tricks. Prostitute skeleton. What'd the skeleton say to her friend? Oh my god, how is my f***ing jaw moving? How do you fix a jack-o'-lantern? You cut off its nads. When is it really bad luck to cross under a ladder? 
when you're running from a rapist? What do you get when you cross a moose and a ghost? A caribou. <laughs> what do you get when you cross a moose, a demi moor, and a ghost? A way better movie than the original. A supernatural centaur woman. Boo herpes. <laughs> For this. So, our story this week, The Year of the Rabbit by Anne Omoyela. Variously known as a student of linguistics, a web application developer, a graduate of the 2008 Clarion West class, a writer of speculative fiction and purveyor of medieval armor and fine-baked goods, Anne mostly resides in places contrary to consensus reality, but is compelled to list a university town in the American Midwest as home on most official documents. Check her out and more of her work at anne.omayella.net. Helping a bit with the narration this week is Kimmy Alexander, who you heard reading on last week's show. She's great if you're looking for spot-on voiceover work and quick turnaround. She's your gal. Hit her up at giftedreader.com. So, without further ado, we bring you The Year of the Rabbit by Anne O'Mayella. To the sea, to the sea. about the street lamps. It used to be that the sun would go down and the street lamps would come on and make pools of this wet, yellow light. No matter where you stood, you could see the lights on somewhere. You could run from street lamp to street lamp and you could look down the streets and you'd never drown in the dark. After the curfew, but before the lights started dying, Sarah and I used to go to the city's edge We'd watch the line where the city lights dropped off, but sitting in our park on the outskirts, we still felt that illusion of safety. Maybe it wasn't safety, but the thrill of walking so close to real night. We could see the lights of Omaha to the northeast, but between them and us was just dark, dark, a swarming ocean of black. Behind us, too, were all the lights of the city, but we were on the edge. Sarah grew up far from here. When she was a kid, she told me, she ignored her parents' warnings and snuck out of the house to dangle her feet in the lapping Mediterranean. That was before curfews. Here, of course, we had no sea, but that was what we were doing, dangling our feet. Tell me about the curfew. My mother went out on the cusp of the twentieth year and didn't come home. After a while, my father went out to look for her and didn't come home either. It was that way for a lot of people, until the people who were left didn't go out. It used to be that you could lie awake at night and listen to the cars, their tires shush-shushing like a river going by. Can you remember that? You could hear sirens sometimes, too. 
Then the cars petered out. You should know what the curfew is. You should already understand. We knew growing up that we humans were the masters of our world. We who'd tamed the sky, who'd cured disease, who'd built roads and rail lines. When my parents disappeared, when all those people were disappearing, we felt that slip. People railed and demanded explanations. They prayed to God and went out with rifles and they never came home. Carefully, the world broke us. We who were left learned not to try. We called that the curfew. When the nights got longer and the daylight got thinner and fewer and fewer people could be found in the city, we abandoned certain comforts, personal rooms and living rooms and all, and moved in with each other. That winter, after the heat went out, you'd come home to find five people in the bedroom and ten in the living room and three more in the kitchen boiling rice on Sterno. When the door opened, everyone would look up at once, afraid of darkness coming in. Night never came into the houses. It was the same way that kids' monsters never crawled under their blankets and never reached over the side of their beds. Sometimes we'd hear something move outside. No footsteps, no breathing, just moving down the street, and we'd huddle close together. I'd hold Sarah's hand. By January, we slept in piles, limbs and bodies and blankets and cushions, one mass of breath and troubled dreams. I had trouble sleeping, but Sarah would stay up with me and whisper. I miss hearing Sarah whisper. We'd peek outside through tears in the paper that covered the windows, and we'd try to make sense of the lights and the darkness. I remember that during the middle months of winter, with no heat, no power, no radio, the street lamps never went out. I still think of those months fondly. Tell me about the Sterno. When the power went out, we had no way to cook. The stores didn't have any way to freeze things either, but once it got to be winter, they just gave up and put it all outside to let nature freeze it down. We went out when the sun was up and it was safer and got frozen things, as many as we could carry, but we were also clever and brought home rice and lentils and tea and flour and anything dry we found. When the water shut off, we started hauling bottled water from the stores, even though a lot of it froze and burst. When it snowed, that was better, because we could just collect that and melt it. You are wondering, aren't you, how we never noticed that there was always food at the stores when none of us worked, when no trucks came in. After the first months, we never saw people staffing those stores, but we found bags of flour and pasta. We found crab apples in crates once. We found salt and pepper and oil. We had to eat. Even when we had Sterno, we kept our house with its fireplace, because you could make a fire out of anything. When we had Sterno, we used that. We'd have seven or eight cans set up under the fireplace grill, set up on rocks to be right under it, and we'd put stock pots on it and boil our couscous, our raisins, our bouillon, our dry milk, whatever we had. We'd split the pot into smaller pots and crowd around and eat with what was on hand. I had a wooden ladle. Sarah had a set of measuring spoons. We never made enough, but we knew that that meant we'd scrape the pots clean. Tell me about the houses. 
When we couldn't go out during curfew, we started to be afraid of outside all the time. People would be suspicious when you passed them on the street. People would get their business done earlier and earlier, until by the first months of winter, no business was done at all. We tried to go out, to stay on top as the masters of our city, but it got easier to stay inside. Inside, creeping back to the safety of our rooms, where everything stayed where we put it, and never, never changed. When the power went out, the houses were still safe, and when the wind was the only thing that talked outside, the houses were still safe, and soon the houses were the only thing that we all agreed on were still safe, and we tried not to stray far from them, like rabbits staying in bolting distance of their dens. I stayed in Sarah's house. It was big enough for all of us. She'd been renting a room, but everyone else was gone. The landlord was gone, gone out with a pistol and never came back, and the house was well-constructed and warm. Sometimes, when there were enough of us and we had batteries for lamps or candles for light, we could pretend we were normal people and happy. And what about Sarah? After a while, Sarah started to wonder why we all hid indoors, as though the fight had gone out of us. She and I made some tea and took a flashlight or two and snuck out to the park after curfew. It wasn't so dark. The street lamps were on then. We decided that as long as we stood in the street lamps, nothing could get us, because night never comes into the street lamps, like night never comes into the houses. We'd lay down paths of light with the flashlights and run from street lamp to street lamp. You'll tell me that's foolish, won't you? Even when we stood there, we thought the night was swarming at the edge of our cast light. I was always afraid it would come into my shadow and make it an enemy to me. Tell me about the park. The park is on top of a hill at the edge of the city, and it must still be there. It has a jungle gym and a woody area with a gazebo and what I think is supposed to be a statue of a bear. It looks like someone started carving a bear out of a log and got tired halfway through, or they went out and didn't come back and someone put the half-log bear up anyway. The park is only a few blocks from our house and the lights on those blocks usually stay on. There's one, though, that blinks in and out like it's trying to catch you. When it's out, that entire block is dark, and it's like there was never any street lamp at all. But when it's on, it soaks into your idea of the world, and it's hard to believe that it might not have been there once, or that it might not be there again. The edges of that light were so sharp, like a loop of your wire on the ground. We liked the park because it was full of lights. You walked into it and you were in this charcoal, yellow, blue world. It wasn't like sunlight because all the colors were wrong, but you could see the whole playground and the gazebo enclosure, and even the shadows looked friendly. Sarah and I would sit on the gazebo table, shoulder to shoulder, her left, my left. We'd watch over each other's backs, but we weren't good at it. We kept slipping into comfort, the warmth of our bodies together, the weight of being two humans under a lamp in the middle of all that night. Sometimes we'd forget about the curfew and laugh louder than we should have. Then we would sneak back home in the middle of the night and slip inside so that no one would notice we were gone. 
will you tell me about Sarah? We tried to keep an eye out for anything unusual while we sat in the gazebo and drank our tea, but I didn't know what was usual anymore. Sometimes we thought that the bear statue might pull itself out of the ground and stump across at us, and we would have to run and scream. Sometimes we told each other ghost stories, but we had to stop because we'd get afraid of the night again, and sometimes the street lamp would flicker, and we'd turn on our flashlights and stay very still, like hares in a field. We'd watch the space outside the dying city lights and wouldn't know what we were watching for. I don't want to tell you about Sarah. Then tell me about the city. It was a big city for the Midwest, but after the curfews started, it rattled empty. Jobs stopped, libraries and movie theaters and parks started going empty, gas stations went dry, stores started leaving everything out on the street corners as their grocers disappeared. There was always food left out for us. A lot of people left, but more vanished. The police were taken first, the National Guard, the Army Reserves. One of our sheriffs was a long-haired woman who lived near me. She checked on me every day when it started. I wish she hadn't. I noticed when she stopped. The city started eating itself. When the heat went off, we tore apart the wooden garages for fuel, even when the smoke was sharp and made us choke. We cut down a few small trees, but the old treated wood of garages caught better and was easier work. We broke down doors, anywhere there weren't people living. We took blankets and soap and food. We filled our lawns with flags and signs to let people know we were alive inside, and then threw them over the fences when we thought they might attract the wrong sort of attention. Was it your attention? In the beginning, people made bonfires, signal fires. They were bright and valiant against the curfew, and they all went out. And the people who made them, too. We taped paper up over all the windows, layers and layers. No one wanted to risk the night getting in. We put all the cats outside, wouldn't let them back, because they'd paw aside the curtains and tear the paper we'd put up. At night, you could hear them yowling, fewer and fewer, until they were gone. What about the dogs? Sarah had a dog, a big golden retriever. He was old when the curfew came. He'd been old for a long time. Sometimes Sarah would lean over and hug him close to know he was still breathing. He'd sit with big, placid eyes when the dogs howled outside. One night, we came home, it was only four or five of us then, and we had all our arms full of flour and sugar and oil and yeast. Our shoulders ached. There was always food left out for us. The dog was sleeping on the couch, but when Sarah went to hug him, he wasn't just sleeping, and she chased us out of the room. We were trying to make bread, trying to burn wood that wouldn't fill the bread with soot, trying to understand how on earth people had done this in what we'd called simpler times. We left Sarah alone for a while, and when we came back, the dog was gone, and Sarah was on the couch with her fingers knotted against each other. Tell me about Sarah. Sarah took a slice of bread. It was doughy on the inside and a bit charred, but we had to get used to making dough. 
We had to take what we were given. She tore it into little pieces. She suggested we make rolls instead of loaves, or maybe sticks, because they'd take less time to cook through. That was how she was, practical, and she was right, of course, and the sticks were easier to make. Tell me more. Sarah was smarter than me, and more of a daredevil, and that was all right, because she got out of things okay. She started taking things from the stores when they still called it looting. She drove her car when everyone else had stopped, and when the street lamp flickered out above us on our walks to the park, she'd take my hand and run to the next one, and she would start laughing. It was her idea to start going to the park. She loved ideas. Once she thought up a play we could all put on when it was cold outside and inside there were too many of us in that house and we were getting crabby with each other. It was hard to keep that many people happy, all packed in like that. You know what happened to Sarah. But tell me. We brought tea out every night we went to the park, running from street lamp to street lamp like children sneaking out. We held hands because it was silly or because we didn't care. We ran from street lamp to street lamp and there was one that would always blink off and on like it was trying to catch you. But we didn't care. We were running like we always had and we hit that street lamp and it went out. And all the other ones did too. All down the street as far as we could see. All through the city like someone had spilled a jar of ink and it was covering everything. And we froze, and Sarah tugged my hand toward the park, and I tugged her hand toward the house, and we came apart. Sarah said something. I didn't listen. I wish I had listened. You know what happened to Sarah. I ran. I cut across someone's backyard with its untouched snow, too white in the moonlight. I hadn't noticed before, but it wasn't so dark, not with the moon and all this white, but it was dark enough, and I could hear something moving. My coat was flapping like a signal to anything watching. A shadow fell over me, and I screamed. I closed my eyes. I threw my arms up over my face. I... When I fell, I felt as though I was flying up into the air, caught by the ankles, but I only hit the ground. Then I was down in the dry snow with the grass underneath scratching my face, and then it was dark. I got to my hands and knees, and then my feet, and I ran and slipped and caught myself, kept running, and I scrambled at the door to our house, but the door was open and the house was empty. Night was everywhere. I could feel it on the back of the couches. I tried to beat it off like dust. I swallowed and I could taste it in my throat. I kept stepping in the night. It made the carpet cold. I was breathing it, couldn't stop breathing it, and it made my lungs dark. It was darker than outside. The night had gotten in. I called and called, but no one heard me. All that silence for months had made my voice small. I didn't care if something outside might hear. I wanted someone to hear me, to come find me and tell me things would be okay. And no one came. 
No one but you came. Didn't you come? Or were you already there, sitting in the carpet and across the couches, slipping across my ankles like a snare? I tried to make something of it. I tried to wait for morning. I tried to wrap myself up in a blanket. But the night got into the blankets. No matter how I shook them out and beat them against the walls, it wouldn't get out. I tried to close my eyes, but it was too dark behind my eyelids. At last, I tried to go outside, but the untouched snow was too cold and too alien. So I stayed here. I went through the drawers where the candles used to be. I went to the corner where Sarah used to sleep with her shoulder to the wall. I listened to my footsteps talking and talking like questions I didn't know how to answer. I started talking and talking so I could hear a voice inside that night. Where am I? I asked. And what happened to the world? I am always here. What's to become of me? And Sarah? What's become of Sarah? Out somewhere in the world? Did she make it home? Is she waiting for me? In scraps of noise and cold air coming through the walls, when my voice is too raw from speaking, you see me. Don't you? I stay still and listen for her voice. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. The majority of fears stem from an aversion to the unknown, the uncivilized, the uncertain. What sums up these attributes better than darkness? And why make darkness anything more than just that? Well, I hope now that we've exercised the ancient seething demon of Halloween lameness, that your Halloween this year is a little less typical. Oh, looky, the first wave of little brats asking for free stuff is here. Trick or treat! Hey, kids, why do werewolves like to sing show tunes? Uh, why? They're homosexuals. Here, have some full-sized candy bars. <gasps> Turn that off. It's still Halloween, for God's sakes. The Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it or sell it, but feel free to share it with all you like. If you enjoyed the show, help us out. Throw us a donation via the links on our website, Drabblecast.org, or subscribe for an automatic five or ten dollar a month donation. That's a great value for free weekly fiction delivered right to your metaphorical doorstep. 
It'll help you sleep at night and help us pay authors for their great work. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Richard Green. Richard's a 58-year-old single dad living in Metro Atlanta with two 13-year-old sons and a dog named Savannah. His career started as a radio and DJ, then a video editor in Nashville, then he went to work for IBM. He got laid off from IBM a few years ago and has been doing freelance graphic art and web design ever since, and loving it. Check him out at richardkgreen.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you to not stay out past your curfew.